Welcome to Global Health and Childhood Cancer. I'm your host, Mark Zobeck. Today on the podcast, we'll be talking to Saskia Mostert. Saskia is a pediatric hematologist oncologist at the Princess Maxima Center and the Amsterdam University Medical Center in the Netherlands. She's also the research coordinator in pediatric oncology outreach program of these institutions. I'm excited to bring you our conversation today because I think we had a really important talk about treatment abandonment. She was the fourth of the presenters at the Treatment Abandonment Symposium at SIOP 2018 in Kyoto, Japan. So you'll hear us reference that some. And we're talking through the presentation she gave, which was called Beyond Socioeconomics, Building Trust and Communication Matters. It was a great conversation, and I think you'll enjoy it. But unfortunately, we had a little bit of difficulty with the audio. It kind of sounds like someone is turning on a chainsaw or starting a lawnmower in the background. Um, I think it was a problem with the fan inside of her computer that would just kind of rev up sometimes. I did my best with the audio to clean it up, but you'll see it's still there. So if you're a hardcore audio lover, you may be a little bothered by this episode. But for the rest of us, I think you'll see it doesn't doesn't make that much of a difference. In fact, it kind of blends into the background. Just think of happy little lumberjacks or people mowing their lawns in the background agreeing with Saskia as she makes good points about her research. Okay, there's my excuse for the audio. And without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Dr. Saskia Mostert. I'm here with Saskia Mostert, who also gave a presentation at the PSYOP Treatment Abandonment Symposium recently. Um, I guess now it was a few months ago, back in November of 2018. And she's here to talk to us today about her presentation. So, Sasia, welcome to the podcast. Go ahead and tell us a little bit about um, kind of the background to your talk and and how you see treatment abandonment. Okay. Well, thank you, Mark, uh, for the invitation to talk to you today about, indeed, our presentation, Beyond Socioeconomics, Building Trust and Communication Matters. And I will be providing you with some evidence from Indonesia and Kenya But before I start talking, I think it's important to give a little bit of background information. Uh, Close collaboration exists between the Princess Maxima Center and the Amsterdam University Medical Center in the Netherlands. These are the institutes to which I am affiliated, and the Dr. Sargito Hospital, which is an academic hospital in Indonesia, and the Moy Teaching and Referral Hospital, which is also an academic hospital based in Kenya. And we found at both uh, settings that the main reason for childhood cancer treatment uh, was abandonment of treatment. And when we started our collaboration with the uh, hospitals in Indonesia and Kenya, we normally always start with a retrospective medical record study. And in Kenya, we found uh, when we studied the medical records of 181 children with cancer, that 54% of them abandoned treatment and only 20% survived. As I said, a similar study has been done in Indonesia among 164 children with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And we found in this group that 35% abandoned treatment and 20% survived. However, we also learned that treatment results in Indonesia differed significantly between patients with different socioeconomic status, despite the fact that all patients in the hospital were treated by the same Uh, medical team members and using the same 
uh, treatment protocols. So we define poor and prosperous as follows. Poor patients were staying at the third class wards, where normally 80% of the families are staying, and more prosperous patients attended the VIP first and second class wards. And then we found that 47% of the poor versus only 2% of the more prosperous patients abandoned treatment. And only 11% of the poor versus 45% of prosperous patients survived. So we found a very significant difference in treatment outcome and survival between poor and prosperous families. And then we wanted to gain more insight into the reasons for the poor treatment adherence and particularly the high abandonment rates among uh, the poor families. So we conducted interviews both in Kenya and in Indonesia with healthcare providers and parents. And we found that poor families received limited attention from the oncologists and limited information. So strong social hierarchical structures hindered communication in both settings with the doctors, resulting in a lack of parental understanding of the need to continue treatment. And we also learned that most families could not afford treatment. Access to health insurance was not adequate and there was no follow-up system to detect and contact dropouts. And this brought up another question in our teams, and that is that we were very interested if parental socioeconomic status also influences the beliefs, the attitude and the behavior of the Indonesian and the Kenyan healthcare providers. So what did we do? We interviewed over 200 doctors and nurses at both settings, and we found that most healthcare providers indeed asked parents at diagnosis about their financial situation. And the decision to start treatment was influenced by the financial situation of the families involved and also by the motivation of the doctors. And the healthcare providers stated that they believed that the prosperous patients would adhere better with treatment and that doctors adhere better with treatment for the more prosperous patients. We also learned that most of them believed that most patients cannot afford to complete treatment anyway, and they acknowledged that less extensive explanations were given towards poor families and that communication is impeded by differences in status. So this taught us that beliefs, attitude, and behavior of healthcare providers towards poor versus prosperous patients appear to differ, appear to differ, and that we learned that it is important to emphasize uh, to the teams that it is important to be aware of these perceptions as they may result in a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because if you expect people to perform less, your own input may decrease and subsequently the adherence of parents and patients may diminish and lesser treatment outcomes evolve, meaning in this case, higher abandonment rates and lower survival. So to conclude (laughs) this long story, I think that poor families uh, need to overcome in low and middle income countries two extra barriers to achieve cure, not only the financial struggles, which I think are very often, you know, good to understand, but also the fact that they receive less time, attention and education from medical teams. You just gave us a great big picture overview. And so I want to just key in on a few things that you said as you were relating that journey to us, because you started with a medical record study in Indonesia, you said, and you found that there was this profound difference between 
poor patients and prosperous patients in terms of refusal or abandonment and in terms of um, of survival as well. And so when you were looking through the data, did you expect to see this big of a split, you know, from what you knew about the Indonesian treatment center? Did that fit your preconceived notions or was that a surprise to you? Well, I must say that initially it, it came a bit as a surprise because, as I mentioned, uh, you know, you when you start, you have the feeling that uh, both the poor uh, patients attending the, the third class wards and uh, the more rich patients attending the VIP first and second class wards are treated by the same medical teams using the same protocols. So then, in a way, you think uh, that treatment results will be uh Similar, especially at that time, we were using uh, donated chemotherapy. So we were thinking that a lot of uh, financial struggles uh, would have been covered by the donated chemotherapy. But while I was working there, the first time I stayed there for six months, I soon learned that the, the doctors in the hospital, especially the experienced doctors, were more attending the, the, the VIP patients, so to say, and the junior residents were attending the, the poor families at the third class watch, where the majority of the children were. So then you learn already that although the situation initially at first glance looks similar, that in fact, there is a very different attitude, in fact, towards uh, by the medical team towards the poor and the more rich families. And that is one of the reasons why both in Kenya and in Indonesia, we started to develop a structured parental education program, meaning that because we knew that the families who had uh, more, who, who were more affluent, uh, were receiving individual attention from the pediatric oncologist, receiving time uh, explanations about the cancer, the treatment, and the importance of treatment adherence. And we knew that uh, because the poor families were treated by junior residents without much supervision, uh, the information they were giving was very often inconsistent. So that um, gave us the idea that it is best that once per week we would provide a structured parental education program in the hospital. We would be inviting all families, no matter if you are rich or poor. And in this way, uh, we gave a video presentation during this session in which we interviewed uh, the oncologists and nurses, but also survivors and families who had gone through the experience. So we could make sure that all families would receive the same information. And in addition, we provided an info information booklet so that everything that they had seen in the video, uh, they could also read at their homes later on. And we gave them the opportunity because the video presentation was given to get and the education session was given by a pediatrician. So during this one hour per week, the families could ask questions to a doctor. And in that way, we tried to make sure that no matter if you are rich or poor, everybody has the same access to good uh, education. Gotcha. And you spent some time talking to families both before doing this education intervention, and then also afterwards, right? Can you tell us what, what kind of things did you hear from families prior to this education project? And then how did the 
feedback change afterwards? Well, I think before that, people uh, really were, first of all, in, you know, the, in low and middle income countries, people have lower, especially among the poor families, they have lower educational backgrounds. So whereas maybe in Western high income countries, everybody has heard of cancer and everybody associates the word cancer with death. Very often in settings like Kenya and Indonesia, especially among the poor, uh, this uh, awareness yeah, and, and concept of what is cancer and it is indeed a dangerous disease that needs uh, adequate treatment, that is not so much uh, prevalent, present. So if you don't inform families, you don't empower them in a way with knowledge, and then they will, after a while, uh, once the children, first they bring the children who are sick, and then after a treatment, they will have the feeling that the symptoms uh, will be reduced and the child appears to be more healthy again. And then if nobody told them why it is so important that you need to continue treatment, they might as well, especially facing all these financial struggles, say, okay, my child looks healthy again, I can go home. So you need to educate families uh, that uh, cancer uh, might, that there still might be cancer cells present, and that if you don't continue treatment, the disease will uh, might relapse. And then if the children come back to the hospital, very often uh, it will become very difficult uh, to cure their children. So, yeah, I think that is what we, that is what I experienced. And then after the introduction of our education program, you learn that people are better aware. They understand why they have to continue treatment and then they will. This theme of patients not having a category for what cancer is prior to being diagnosed with it or having a family member who's diagnosed with it. I feel like I hear this theme a lot as we've been talking about treatment abandonment. And there seem to be certain kind of cultural conceptions about what it is. And so people have their own explanations. You have to tailor your medical explanation based on what they understand cancer to be. So how did you go about doing that? How did you go about both understanding, you know, what do people think is happening and then explaining to them in a way that, you know, is accessible to to all patients? Well, that's a very good question. For instance, I just returned from a visit to Kenya and indeed uh, the health beliefs in Kenya in the African setting are very different. So when children have cancer and the most uh, common type of cancer in Kenya is Burkitt's lymphoma. Uh, so very often the children uh, enter the hospital with tumor masses and the families believe that the child doesn't have cancer, but that they are, for instance, cursed. They believe that the child is bewitched. So these are very strong beliefs, systems that you need to take into account while you are educating the families. You have to tell them that this is a disease and it is not a curse. And we also learned uh, that it is not only important to educate the parents, but very often it would be very beneficial to uh, go to the schools of the children or to pay a home visit to educate the people surrounding the families with a child of cancer to tell them that this is not a curse. Very often the children are extremely discriminated against and uh, can also be expelled from uh, their own societies uh, if you don't inform the people surrounding these families with a child with cancer about the, the, the nature of the disease. Yeah, there can be a lot of taboo associated with the diagnosis. And so 
Is did you find that there was a best person to deliver the education to the families? Like, is it the doctors themselves, or nurses, or maybe a community member, or a religious leader? Yes, well, we are still uh, uh, looking for the best solution, but I think sometimes it can be very helpful uh, that the medical doctor gives this information. Yes, and that is also why we find it very important that, the, for instance, the education sessions that are given inside the hospital are done by a medical doctor who has, of course, studied uh, medicine for a very long time. So for the more medical technical questions, the families can consult this doctor. And we also provide um, parental supportive meetings. And in that case, we acknowledge that uh, the supportive meetings can better be conducted by uh, psychological counselors or psychologists. So I think it's important that you uh, make sure that if you give information or support, you should do it by a professional. So you had both doctors and psychologists involved? Yes. And also a video presentation, you said. And who who made that and how did you go about making that? Um, well, we asked for a, a professional film crew to make the, the video. Yes. And then we made sure that uh, all, five, for instance, in Indonesia, all five pediatric oncologists were interviewed and given we're giving uh, very clear uh, information about the disease and the treatment and the importance to uh, adhere to treatment. And we also assured that the information they received in the video presentation was the same information that was given in the information booklet. So to prevent any confusion. And was the education program for all patients? Is that right? Or did you just target certain patients? No, no, no. For everybody. Yes, everybody can attend. And I must say the enthusiasm um, among the, the families and the children as well is uh, very uh, large. And the sessions are uh, very much um, attended. And very often people don't want to come once or twice, but as often as they can, they will come to the hospital to hear more and also to be able to ask questions to the doctors. Excellent. And how did the doctors receive it? Because as you said, you know, the medical providers were very busy. Um, they had a lot of patients to attend it to. And so this extra program, was it well received? Did they pick it up and run with it? Or was it something you had to convince people was worthwhile? Well, I think what we normally do, uh, we do this kind of project and we make it part of a research project. So, for instance, in Indonesia, I'm supervising now four PhD students and it is like an integral part of their PhD program to provide these sessions. And by doing that, you know, we will collect all the information, not only of all the people who are attending, but we are also measuring uh, the effectiveness of it. and. So in that way, we can also have, at the end of the project, you know, we have evidence whether it's worthwhile or not, effective or not. And we, um, like when we started, we also made like a randomized controlled trial. So we really could see the difference between uh, several approaches of educating families. And when the doctors then, the medical team learned about uh, its effectiveness, they become more motivated to continue with the projects. So now it's really like an integral part of medical care at both hospitals. I'm just curious, when you randomized the education effort, what, what were your arms that, or what was the difference in the programs? Yeah, well, we provided 
structured parental education program to everybody. So all patients received the video presentation and an information booklet and a DVD that they could bring home and watch the video film again. So that was like the basic care was given to everybody. So then we could do a historical analysis and we found indeed that abandonment um, dropped and event resurvival increased uh, after introduction of this program. But while we were running this program, we also indeed made two arms. So uh, the control group received this basic program of education and the intervention was providing a medication diary book. So half of all uh, children received a medication diary book. And then we checked and we found that survival rates, in fact, doubled in the children who were using a diary book. And it was a very simple diary book in which the patients, or mainly the mothers, I think, were ticking every day if medication had been given. And they also noted, uh, recorded, when they should come back to the hospital. And when they came to the hospital, they should bring the diary book and then a nurse or a doctor would ask for the diary book and uh, would tick as well. So in that way, it also, the diary book became a very simple tool uh, to improve also communication between the medical team and the families. And in fact, that was quite successful. So now in Indonesia, everybody, after we've proven that it is very successful, now all families receive the diary book. And especially when they come to the outpatient clinic, they all bring the diary book and it is checked. Very good. And you said that survival doubled. You may have said this earlier and I may have missed it, but can you tell us like what what specifically what were the outcomes in terms of percentages and other findings from this education project? Well, we found particularly among the mothers uh, who were uh, having a higher education that uh, survival rates uh, were around 40 percent at a time. Uh, when they used the diary book, and they were only 20% when they didn't use. And this was a group. This was a group of children with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Nowadays, we are still following up, and we have seen that survival is indeed uh, increasing further, and abandonment is also reducing much more than it was in the past. So I think gradually we are becoming better in reducing abandonment. Wow. And when was this initial study? Um, uh, we started with the education program in 2004. Okay. And you said since then, you've kind of improved upon the program. So what's changed? Yeah, well, an, a very important improvement that we have been seeing in Indonesia is that starting from January 2014, the Indonesian government implemented a very ambitious program of universal health coverage. And the aim is to make healthcare services accessible to all, so both poor and prosperous Indonesians in 2019. And before 2014, the Indonesian healthcare system was uh, fragmentarily organized. At that time, the prosperous patients received uh, contributory-based health insurance. The very poor Indonesians at living below the poverty line received government-paid health insurance. However, the vast majority of the Indonesians were stuck in the middle and had no health insurance. 
And what we have been doing with our study is that we compared the period before and after introduction of the national health insurance uh, by studying uh, over a thousand medical records. And first of all, we saw that health insurance enrollment and diagnosis improved from 38% in the past to 82% now. And we also found that among the poor, treatment abandonment decreased from 36% to 20% and survival improved from 24% to 34%. And of course, the first logical uh, financial explanation for this could be, well, of course, after introduction of the system, access to cancer care improved, financial burden of disease decreased, and now more patients logically uh, can afford to complete treatment. But a very remarkable finding was that after introduction of universal health coverage, we found for the very first time that abandonment was actually lower and survival was higher among the poor. And that brought us uh, brought up a very important question. How come that suddenly after 15 years in which the poor did worse, compared to the prosperous patients at the VIP awards, how come that that changed? And then we learned that before introduction of the health insurance system, it was financially rewarding for the oncologists to attend the more rich patients at the VIP wards. And they, at that time, they had limited time and attention for poor patients uh, attending the third-class wards. And after introduction of the national health insurance system, it suddenly became financially rewarding for oncologists to attend all patients. And of course, no matter what the socioeconomic background or the class in hospital was. And of course, most patients are at the third class ward. So now you see that more time and attention is given uh, to the poor and maybe less to the more rich patients, which results again and in, in fact underlines, I think, again, our message also of our presentation that trust and communication matters. Eh? So the more attention you give to families, the more you educate them, the better the treatment outcomes will be. That's fascinating that insurance not only supported the patients financially, but also, as you said, closed this gap between education and communication and maybe even trust. And I think an important lesson for us is that the impact of trust and communication on childhood cancer survival is very often underestimated in uh, low and middle income countries. So very often the doctors themselves, I think, do not really realize the importance of paying attention is. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Jumping back to the education initiatives you did, do you feel that that also changed the trust dynamic between the doctors and the patient? Because we talked about it in terms of education, but did it also just change the quality of the relationship or the rapport that was felt? Yes, I really think so. Yes. I think that goes for not only for patient uh, healthcare provider relationship, but any relationship you have as a human being. If you give each other more time and you, hey, you share more time and you provide more attention to each other, then uh, the quality of your relationship improves. And uh, based on many literature studies, uh, has shown that to improve treatment adherence, trust is very important. If you don't trust the doctor, if you dislike your doctor, uh, then you are not very likely to uh, comply with treatment. So all these aspects do matter. Yeah, that makes sense. And we've been 
Speaking primarily about your work in Indonesia, but you spent significant time in Kenya as well. Did you do some similar education programs and did they turn out differently or similarly for you? No, I th- yes, we are currently also running uh, with the help of two PhD students, uh, two uh, doctors in uh, in uh, Kenya. We are running a similar education program, and I think the results there are just as positive. The families are very enthusiastic. They come not not once or twice, but as often as they come, they can. They will attend the settings and they will ask questions to the doctors. Uh, we make it very clear that during the parental education program, it's mainly the medical doctor giving information to the families about medical issues. And during a separate session for the parental supportive meetings, then we make sure that uh, it's not so much about the medical issues, but that families really share experiences. And this is indeed very, very uh, helpful. And also, I think, very helpful for the medical team because then we learn what the families and their health beliefs are and the struggles they have. For instance, uh, when, uh, for instance, in Kenya, children are thought or believed to be bewitched. And based on what they tell us about these situations, we can think of new interventions to try to help uh, the children better also in their communities. And when they survive cancer and they return home, we learn from the families uh, what they need. And you've written about a seemingly unrelated, but I think ultimately uh, related topic, which is the problem of hospital detention. So can you tell us a little bit about what hospital detention is and what you found in the, as it relates to childhood cancer treatment? Yes, well, um, treatment abandonment uh, can also be affected by policies impacting not only access to care, but also, like I said before, had trust and communication. And one of those aspects is detention of either living or diseased patients in hospitals after medical discharge is clinically indicated over unpaid medical bills. So when I started working uh, at the hospital in uh, Kenya during my first visit, I discovered that some children uh, were in fact abandoned inside the hospitals by their parents, not because the parents did not want to take care or could not take care of the children anymore, but because the hospital refused to release the children to the families over unpaid medical bills. So when I heard about this problem for the very first time, Uh, we decided that we wanted to investigate this further. So during a few years, we rolled out different studies, paying home visits and trying to see how many children were actually detained. And step by step, we learn more and more about the problems. And currently, we have also been doing a review, trying to get um, insight into how many ch- how many countries worldwide are facing problems like hospital detention practices, and we found now that in fact many many countries are dealing with this issue, but it is very much hidden, and especially in medical science, not much reported until recently. I think, of course. Again, like both in Indonesia and Kenya, like I said, in many other low- and middle-income countries, patients are detained in hospitals over unpaid medical bills. In Kenya, in fact, 40%, and in Indonesia, 33% of parents 
stated that they, for instance, postponed coming to hospital out of fear of hospital detention practices. And in Kenya, we learned that 80% of the patients had no health insurance a diagnosis, and we found that um, half of all those patients who were uninsured were actually detained and on average, this detention period took five weeks. And, but it had a very wide range yeah, from uh, some children were detained for a few days, but others were detained for maybe eight or nine months. And while we were interviewing the families, parents described that they felt despair and powerless during the time of the detentions and that they thought that the forced hospital stays are unfair and traumatizing to the families. Because you have to understand that the, every day that a child is detained inside the hospital adds to the hospital bill. So it becomes increasingly uh, difficult, maybe impossible for the families to, re uh, to redeem the children because the hospital bill increases by day. And we also learned that it creates distrust and dislike of healthcare providers, which, like I said before, further deteriorates treatment adherence. So these are, I think, the main problems regarding hospital detention practices that we found. And were these detention practices in countries that offer health insurance to people as well, like government health insurance to everybody? That's a very good question. I think the best thing that you uh, can do to prevent hospital detention is implementation of universal health coverage. So I think, uh, first of all, it's very important for the international community to address hospital detention, to acknowledge that this problem exists, and uh, thinking about solutions. Huh? Uh, I think it would be very, very useful if uh, universal health coverage is implemented in more low- and middle-income countries. It will enable a lot of poor families to uh, be able to uh, pay for treatment hmm, or to get treatment without financially suffering so much for it. Yeah, that makes sense. And so when you heard about this practice and explored it further and heard the stories from the families that sound pretty horrifying? Or what has the medical community done and what further things can the medical community do to advocate against these practices? Well, I think the medical com community, first of all, needs to acknowledge that this problem exists. I think they should also promote that this problem is further investigated and reported on. I think also advocacy is required by stakeholders. And for instance, I think it would be crucial for the United Nations to condemn hospital detention practices and to acknowledge that it is in fact a violation of international human rights. And the human rights declaration state, for instance, that patients cannot be detained over debts. And uh, children should not be detained and cannot be taken away from their families. So there are many, many international human rights violated in this issue. So I think also more awareness about the problem is important and maybe also uh, stimulating implementation of universal health coverage is very crucial. I seem to remember also a PSYOP initiative along these lines. Is that still going on? 
Yes, well, we have had uh, with a group of, uh, we have uh, established a task force in which we also try to raise more awareness and look for solutions and try to get more publications out to uh, maybe also break the taboo of speaking on about it. I think it's important that we uh, talk more openly about this problem. Yes. And we have held um, a human rights symposium in which we were um, also giving a lot of presentations regarding this topic. And we had debates. But unfortunately, until now, it's very difficult to um, address this problem in a way that it can be stopped. Yes. Yes, it seems like a, a very big you know, systemic problem that is probably resistant to easy solutions. So this work that you've done in identifying it and exploring it is very important. So I uh, hope that it continues to gain traction. Yes, I hope so too. Well, we're we're coming up on time here. So one last question. I'm just curious, you know, you're from the Netherlands. How did you find yourself spending so much time in Indonesia and Kenya and kind of traveling around the world researching? Well, I studied medicine uh, at the VU University in Amsterdam. And part of medical school is that you have to do a scientific traineeship. So I did my first scientific traineeship in South Africa a very long time ago. And I really, really enjoyed that. In fact, we I was working on a program uh, in which also education sessions were set up for children uh, suffering from t tuberculosis in the townships. And when I returned back to the medical school in Amsterdam, uh, I was invited by our the professor at that time uh, in pediatric oncology to uh, work for him for half a year and go to Indonesia to check and to conduct a medical record study. And in fact, I went there for half a year and when I returned he offered me a PhD program, and that's how it all started. Yes, and I still enjoy my work very much. Yeah, that's great. Well, we appreciate all the work you've done and the wisdom you have to share to improve the care of children with cancer. So thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for this conversation. If, if people would like to get in touch with you to ask you more questions about the topics you've presented, is there a way? Yes, they could uh, email me, and my email address is espentmosterd at vumc.nl. I think that would be the easiest way. Okay. And we will post that on the website, uh, your email address, as well as the slides for the presentation that we've been referencing throughout this talk. If you want to find out more about the importance of building trust and communication in childhood cancer treatment, then go to the website ghccpod.com and check out the uh, lecture slides. And if you need to get in touch with Dr. Mostert, then please do. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. It's been a lovely conversation and uh, we look forward to seeing what things are next for you. Thank you very much for your time as well. Thank you. Thank you.